0: Welcome to episode number 161 of the Addiction Unlimited podcast. Thank you for spending some time with me today listening to the pod. I have a great episode coming up for you guys, and I know I always say that, but I do always mean it, (laughs) and I feel like it's the truth. So, um, One thing I do want to clarify, because there are some pretty big things happening in podcast world. And I feel like there has been some confusion and issues, some tech stuff happening over the last few weeks. So I just want to address it really quickly. Apple podcast has made some changes, and they are starting to charge for subscriptions. Now, I don't know how this is coming across for you guys as listeners in your world and how it works for you, because obviously I have podcast accounts, right? So I think I see things and get information differently than you guys do on your apps and stuff. But the one thing I want to clarify, number one, I am not charging subscription to listen to my podcast that is not happening that has never been an intention of mine this charging for subscriptions thing on the podcast side uh has been in the works for a long long time since i started my podcast right and when i had to pick my podcast hosting company and all of those Back end details, that played a huge role in how I made those choices because we all kind of knew this was coming down the pipeline. Obviously, everybody wants to make money and I'm not slamming Apple or I think Spotify just started charging for subscriptions too. And I'm not slamming those. Listen, I'm a capitalist. I want everybody to make money. Everybody deserves to make money. If you have what it takes to start a business, build a business, create something amazing, I want you to be paid for it. And I am happy to pay you for it. I want everybody to make money. But I do want to clarify again (laughs) I am not charging for subscriptions to listen to my podcast. That is definitely not happening. So again, I don't know how this is going to work on the podcast app side. I don't know what that's going to look like, but you guys too understand that really this is for huge podcasts like NPR, you know, where they have millions of downloads a month, probably a week, really, I don't know. And you and I here at Addiction Unlimited, although we are kicking booty for sure, and thank you for that we are not at millions of downloads a month, okay? (laughs) If we were, I would be selling ads like a crazy person and living in a mansion somewhere, and that's not the case, okay? So we're not quite there yet. If you want to help me get there, share our episodes. (laughs) But... I just wanted to let you know that this is happening. So if you're seeing some things changing in your podcast app, remember that there are a ton of ways that you can listen to podcasts. This is also why Addiction Unlimited has its own website. So all my podcast episodes live on the website, addictionunlimited.com forward slash episodes. So you can go to addictionunlimited.com, click the episodes tab, and every episode is right there. I have a ton of people message me also that they're looking for episode zero, and I would assume because it's so far back and we have so many episodes now that that doesn't show up in your app, um, whatever podcast app you use, but it is on addictionunlimited.com. Now, you're going to have to like scroll down the page and hit load more, and it's going to load some more older ones. And you'll scroll scroll down, hit load more, and it will load (laughs) like you're going to have to go all the way back to the beginning. But it is there. (laughs) I promise you it is there. And that's probably honestly the only way to find it. But I just wanted to clarify, things are a little bit weird, I think, in podcast world. I think that when... I post a podcast or schedule it to post. There is some delay a little bit. Like sometimes it's coming out later than others. I do not personally have any control over that. We did have a tech issue last week. And the episode didn't even come out, I guess. And I didn't know that until one of you guys let me know. One of you guys messaged me. And of course I went in immediately to figure out what the problem was and get it fixed. But I feel like things are just a little wacky right now. <laughs> and I just wanted to let you guys know what's really going on with all of that. Again, I don't, I think that you're still going to be able to listen to all your favorite podcasts without being charged for them. I mean, I just don't know how the rollout is going to happen. So I don't know if this is going to be deals that Apple is making with individual podcasts, or if they're going to start charging a subscription just to have the Apple Podcasts app. I mean, I don't really know. But I am not charging subscription to listen to my podcast. So let's just stick with that. We're going to keep moving forward the way we have always done because we together are crushing it and we just want to keep doing that. Also, remember too, you guys, this week I'm doing the five-day live training in the Addiction Unlimited Facebook group. I'm going live every single day, like 30, 40-minute videos. We're doing awesome. It's been so much fun, and those videos will stay up for a period of time, so you can watch. You don't have to catch it live. I'm leaving them all up, and... We are signing up for the six-week signature program. We're starting a new group right now. So you have till the end of the week, if you want to schedule a consultation with me, get more information about that program, I will link to its webpage in the show notes so you can find it there. Get in the Facebook group check out some of those lives. If you want to jump on a consult call with me to ask some questions, please do that because um, that's what my days are really filled with this week to get everybody in. Uh, Such a fun program. And that's all I've got, you guys. So let's get this episode going. This is one of my dearest friends, Stephen Watts. And Wattsy was on my podcast A long time ago, you guys, in the very beginning. (laughs) I don't remember. I think he was, I think he was in the first 15 episodes, maybe 20 episodes, way back in the day. And Watsy is this incredible guy who has been in the industry for a long time. And what we're talking about is, how do you know it's time to get help? How do you know when it's time to go to treatment, take some steps to do something different, if you're spinning your wheels over and over? And this is incredible information also, if you know someone who has a child or a spouse or a parent and they're struggling with addiction, there's we have a great conversation around all of these issues and how to communicate with somebody and approach somebody and what to say and what those thought processes are. So just a really good conversation that I thought would be great information for those of you out there that are still struggling, trying to put together that a little bit of time and being stuck in that day one over and over again saga, right? There's a lot of good information in here. So I love you guys. Here is my dear, dear friend, Stephen Watts. Okay, my friends, this is one of my loveliest and dearest friends, Mr. Stephen Watts, on the show with us today. And you may remember Mr. Watts was on my show way, way, way back in the very beginning days. Wattsy, do you remember this? Where were we when we recorded? I know we were were in a different city.
1: (laughs) We were in Jupiter, Florida, in the Jupiter, in the, I I always get this name uh, mixed up. Grand Wyndham Jupiter Hotel. And And
0: we 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 snuck around. We found
1: a room. I think we found (laughs) an empty room. We did. Yeah, you had your equipment with you. And we sat there in this empty room in the hotel.
0: Yeah, we went to like an upper floor. It was very quiet. I think it was pretty late at night. And we found an empty conference room. And we just set ourselves up right there and recorded.
1: Now, I remember a lot. We had a good time. And I remember we laughed a lot. And I was worried about laughing so much on your <laughs> podcast.
0: <laughs> well, we do laugh a lot, so it's okay.
1: Well, yeah, we do. When you asked me to do this, I, I thought, wow, this is so cool. I get to kind of come back a little bit. And um, and I've listened to your podcast, Angel. They're just, I've told you this before. You just got this great DJ voice and you just really, I, I think a talk, your own talk show on television is next.
0: You think that's uh, next?
1: Yeah, I think, I think, uh, Jimmy Fallon needs to quit and you need to just go ahead and take the, the late show over.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I think I'm, a, I'm, I'm more feral than I am domesticated. So I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I could follow all the rules of a talk show.
1: <laughs> I love that word feral. Elena.
0: I am. I'm definitely feral. <laughs> so I wanted to have you back on because you have worked in the treatment industry for a million years which I love you have seen so many things change and evolve in this world and you know the treatment world has changed in a huge way just in the last 10 years for sure that I've been around so I love you have so much knowledge and insight and something I wanted to really talk about with you is how do you know when it's time to go to treatment? You know, like it's no secret. It takes many people, many tries to really get sobriety to stick. It is not uncommon for people to go to treatment multiple times. And I think a lot of people sit back where they're trying it on their own, as we all do. You know, we all want to do it on our own. And if we could successfully do it on our own, I guess there wouldn't be 14,000 treatment centers in America (laughs) because everybody would be doing it on their own. But, you know, you get caught up in these patterns. And at what point do you stop and say, okay, I have to get more help or help on a bigger level? So that's kind of what I want to talk about. Why don't you take a second and let everybody know a little bit about you and what you do? Oh,
1: okay. Thank you. Um, I was listening intently to what you were I love this topic. <laughs> There's so many things I could ways to spin off from that. I, you said it. I've worked in the field for a long time. I started as a young man. I worked for a county program while I was in college, and I worked three to eleven, and I did crazy things like, Pass out uh, medications like Vistril and Delantin to alcohol street alcoholics that were, you know, bordering DTS. By the time they came to Shelby County Treatment Research Center, it, it's no longer there. And I was a counselor, uh, addiction licensed addiction counselor for a lot, lot of years, an interventionist, and I got trained to be an interventionist. I love this story because the, the company that trained me to be an interventionist was looking at intervention as a means to build census. And what they were doing is teaching us a skill that was, you know, Vern Johnson's creation. And it was an incredible skill. I mean, they put us through a week of intense training with, I had a Johnson Institute trainer and my first name was Monica. I hope she's still around. She's really sharp. And so I've done all that kind of stuff. And, and I, in the last in recent more recent years um, I do, community outreach, business development, marketing kind of stuff. And, and I'm the last four years I've worked for a treatment program in South Florida and, and it's just, and I'm going to do a shameless plug here, but this is a, it's kind of like God saved the best for the last, because this is a family owned treatment program. They're doing it for the right reason. And I mean, they have really, the, the owner, Mike Holloway has really hung with this when probably on anybody's spreadsheet we should have been out of business years ago (laughs) and and, but we're still there and we're thriving and so many things have been added and i'll talk i'll talk about that later and when you in context of what treatment offers and things uh i find it really amazing of the changes in treatment and you and i've talked so many times about it and that's one of the reasons i love talking to you because you are um you're such a good observer of treatment and, and not just treatment, but what it takes for people to, to get deep into their recovery and sobriety. And there is a difference in the AA world between the word sobriety and recovery. Um, but it's a real subtle difference. And, and I'll talk about that, but yeah, I've had a, I've had a good run and, and I'll I have, I've, you know, I, it was totally an accident. I wanted to teach college and I just kept doing one job after another. And I ended up, you know,
0: here we 50, are
1: 50 years <laughs> later. I mean, this is re- I don't mind outing myself. I mean, 50 years I've been around uh chemically dependent people, alcoholics, um, you name it. People that have been addicted to every mood altering chemical that I know of on the planet. So Yeah. And oh,
0: how things have changed! And even how the substances have changed. You know, I mean, even the substances now are are different in a lot of ways than uh, than what they They used to be. Yeah, it's a different ballgame right now.
1: It is, and and there's fourteen thousand treatment programs for a reason. And and there's some really good treatment programs in the United States, seriously. And yeah, for sure, we'll talk about different treatment programs as we go through this. And. It, it, there, I mean, thank God, you know, treatment does work. And I told somebody, maybe I told you earlier today when we were talking, but I don't know. Treatment. Is, oh, I know what it was. I was at lunch with a friend of mine who's been in recovery for, I don't know, I'm thinking 25 years. And and they he said to me, you know, like it, it, it's sometimes it's just good for if people just. Don't get around alcohol or what the mood altering chemical they're addicted to. If they can just separate themselves for thirty days or whatever, and I said you're exactly right. You know, even bad. I have this <laughs> saying: this is terrible. Even bad treatment is good treatment unless um, they mm-hmm. hurt a the person. I don't think any treatment program should hurt a person, and that sadly has happened in our country in past years uh, by unethical treatment providers. But it. Just going to treatment is a good way to just break the chain, break the chain of addiction. Absolutely. Absolutely. You
0: know. And that's one of the things I tell people. This comes into conversation a lot too. I think when people have been to treatment multiple times yeah. and, are and kind of arguing, like, why would I go back? And the thing is you, if you were doing it successfully on your own, normally you wouldn't be talking to me. You know, so there is a, there is a problem in, in what's happening and what you're doing in just the separating from the drugs and alcohol part and treatment is this really amazing way to make a clean break, to be in a place where you're safe where you have food and shelter and friends, and yep. <laughs> you don't have a lot of stress, right? It's really a fantastic way to just take a deep breath, chill out for a minute, you know, get your feet firmly on the ground and get comfortable just with that. And Amen. then start thinking about going back to regular life because there is some truth in there's only so much you're going to learn in treatment, right? Like treatment is dictated predominantly by insurance. So they do have certain things that they have to teach. There's a certain way they have to do things to meet the standards of insurance for billing and all of that stuff. So I get it when people say, listen, I've been twice. Like, what am I really going to get out of it? Well, number one, and my listeners will love this because they will probably already know I'm going here. Number one, I would say Start thinking about what you can give while you're there instead of thinking about what you can take, Uh right? Maybe you're there to be supportive and help other people too, because you do have some different knowledge and experience that other people in that treatment center aren't going to have. So think about what you can give, not just what you can take. And also the other part of that is just getting a clean break, being in a safe place, and just getting over the hump of detox and cravings and all of that stuff. So you have kind of a fresh start.
1: You said a real, I, I thought you said two key words, a safe place. Well, that's actually three, but it it's, you're right. I mean, I've had so many people tell me over the years, like when I was out and drinking or, Partying or drug or whatever, wherever I was in the spectrum of addiction, I never felt safe. I, I always or or I felt like something was about to happen to me. I have heard that so many times, and like treatment is, if nothing else, it needs to be a safe place, mm-hmm. and it needs to have medical supervision. You know, because even people that are people that inter, interrupt the disease process to say early because most people that show up for treatment are at least in middle stages of addiction but in a lot sadly in late middle stages but a safe place is so important that a person can um be and be in that spot where they know that they're not in danger nobody that they're they're not going to harm themselves hopefully and, and nobody else is going to and so i just think i'm glad you said that because i just think that's an aspect of treatment that's not maybe not emphasized enough, but treatment is a safe place. Hopefully it is a really safe place to be.
0: Yeah, for sure. So what would you say to people who are thinking or wondering, is it time for me to go to treatment? You know, should I, shouldn't I, will it work for me? Is it the right thing to do? A
1: lot of people want to go to outpatient treatment. <laughs> And and that's fine if they're able to do a couple of things, Um, if they're able to, uh, well, here's what I think the criteria for outpatient is. If the person's able to admit they have a problem, okay, you know, I'm an alcoholic or I'm addicted to, you know, my benzodiazepines I've got in my medicine cabinet. Um, If they're able to admit, if they have a huge support network, if they have a pretty significant network of support, and if they have a job or in school. And I think that's great. Uh, and I think people like that can make it an outpatient. But today, we don't see a lot of that. And I think that the decision to when do I go to treatment really has to do with, um, you know, how you're functioning in life? Are you, you know, how are you managing your life? You and I both know that this is a disease of unmanageables. And, and like, I think in that if I was doing a checklist of okay, what are the things I need to look for that just are gonna help me decide that I need to go to a residential facility where I can focus strictly on getting well, getting better. Because a lot of people that go on a tree, they don't know what the word sobriety is, they never heard mm-hmm. it. And and recovery to them is has something to do with a car or money. So you know <laughs> it it just I think that if one of the keys for people to decide if they can go to treatment is if they're hearing their closest people, their closest family or their closest friends. And this doesn't happen a lot. And you know this too, Angel. But if they are hearing people around them express to them concern, because I do find that some people are getting more bolder with close friends or family members mm-hmm. and saying maybe it's time for you to stop and take a look at that so that's a big indicator when other people are talking to you about it and 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 try as we might we try to keep it a secret you know And try to keep <laughs> you know try, hey i'm an alcoholic but i'm not going to tell anybody and and everybody knows and everybody around the person knows and their boss at work knows or their family doctor knows or their Loved one, all their loved ones know, their close friends know. And, and that's, so when people, I think when people hear others around them, their, their support networks, say, Hey, you know, there's, you got a problem. There's something going on here. And I don't, I think you need help. That's a real good thing to listen to. Mm -hmm. When people are experiencing not just big medical issues, but changes in their physical health, elevated blood pressure, insomnia, er, early stage symptoms. One of the early, one of the prominent early stage symptoms of alcoholism is sleep is is sleep disturbance. Mm-hmm. Sleeping for a couple of hours, wake up, can't go back to sleep, then go to sleep. But it's so. But you know, it's like so many other illnesses, diseases, the early stuff gets kind of, the early symptoms kind of gets passed over. So I think if a person is is looking, if they're honest enough to look at their life and say, hey, my job performance is wonky right now. Uh, my relationships with people that I've normally been close to and people that I love and care about, I, I just don't want to really be around that much right now because they're talking to me about the problem, mm-hmm. um, those are things we got to pay attention to. If we are um, suffering, and I mean, if we're suffering from financial problems. But, you know, people, that's interesting enough. I mean, if you get a DUI or two DUIs, that's a pretty big, you know, the, it, the odds in alcoholism correlated with driving under the influence arrest are there. Mm-hmm. You got a DUI. You've got twenty percent. You're you're twenty percent there. Two DUIs it jumps. You've got a at least a fifty percent chance of having a serious issue with alcohol, a dependency. And three DUIs, you know, I've I've worked with people that had four, five, six DUIs. How they did it? They did it in multiple states, right? Um, but these are, I mean, these are like glaring, you know, red alarm bells going off, and that's fine. I'd like to see people make those decisions earlier on. And the way to do that is to talk to somebody trust about it. Well, um, and
0: interesting that you brought up DUIs too, though, because I feel like that is one of the criteria that people use to kind of talk themselves out of being yeah. an alcoholic, you know, because it's one of the first things so many people will say, well, I've never gotten a DUI. And, you know, here, the truth, I was a crazy, chronic alcoholic, daily drinker, and I I didn't get a DUI till the very end of my drinking. So that doesn't mean I wasn't an alcoholic, you know, and I think a lot of that really was just because for the majority of my drinking time, I lived in a very big city where the police were already busy. You know, they weren't, DUIs (laughs) weren't big in Los Angeles, right? In the heart of Hollywood because there was so much other stuff going on. Um, Cops aren't sitting waiting for you to not use your turn signal or checking, speeding, right? Because they're busy with big, serious crime. And I think that's the only reason I didn't get a DUI for all of those years. But it it is one of the things that people always say, well, I've never had a DUI. I'm like, well, that doesn't that that's not a grading tool, you
1: know. Yeah, I've never, I've never. I, I bet you thought about DUIs, Angela. <laughs> you,
0: you know thought, what? I, I had all that
1: LA copy thought he's going to get me right now. Oh you my know?
0: gosh! When I I had so many times. And this is, this is fairly common too, because it's like alcoholics have nine lives. I had so many times that I got stopped or pulled over for various things and I got let go. And I think it almost reinforced that I was okay to do what I was doing and I mean, it's crazy. I had many, many of those times, like probably five, six instances of that over the course of years where I really should have had DUIs every time. Yeah, I think too, one of the main things in really deciding if it's time to go to treatment is if you have had failed attempts at sobriety on your own, right? Like if you are relapsing, then what you're doing isn't working. and if you want a different result, you have to take different actions. So each time you relapse, I always say to people, each time you relapse, look at what you were doing. Look at how much energy you were really putting into it, how committed you really are or were, and where were the gaps. And you have to figure out how to fill in those gaps. Because if you're going to try again and you want a different result, you can't do it the same way you just did it because it didn't work. So you have to do something different
1: you know, but you're exactly right. And I I was just thinking about all the, I mean, it somehow, if people could connect the dots more, and I think, and I do believe that some of this is happening where people are looking at their losses, their unmanageables, all the things that are getting hinky, so to speak in their life, you know, Years ago, we used to do groups on the uh, the. I think it was the Gelnick chart, and it had mm-hmm. like, you know, it moved through the progression of the disease. It would start over here, then take this big dip, and then it'd go up over here. Had all these symptoms on it, and the thing about symptomology with alcoholism is it's behavioral. I mean, most of it. Now, when we get when alcoholics get really sick, then it becomes medical signals happen mm-hmm. you know um but i i really like what we I like what we're talking about here in that there's got to be a mechanism that people can refer to 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 help them make a decision on it. okay what do i really need to do here i'm i'm hurting myself you know, we're talking about DUIs a while ago. The other thing is I used to hear people say, well, I've never missed a day of work Mm -hmm. Uh, or um, not divorced or, Mm -hmm. you know, some of these things. And of course you and I recognize those as things that were rational. It's the alcoholic rationalization, the minimization and, and denial, and which has blocked so many people from making the decision to go to help get treatment. But now we're talking about 2021. Now we've got all this education about there's so much more awareness about the disease of alcoholism. And, and I mean, this is a disease of chemical dependency, period. And earlier in the day, we were talking about, you know, how the hell did this fentanyl thing, you know, just <laughs> blow up out of this mushroom like some kind of nuclear explosion? Is as much education, I mean, it's almost like the disease has kept pace with. You know the good changes in treatment, more education, more awareness. It's more okay now, and in some parts of the country, and it's still struggling in the South. But some parts of the country, it's so much more permissible to raise your hand and say, "Hey, time out! I got to stop here. I got I got a serious issue with and and well, and people recognize it as I have a serious issue with my drinking. People don't know speaking of symptoms and making the decision when to go to treatment, a lot of people are totally unaware drinking is a symptom of yes. a deeper issue. Yes. It could be things we talked about before. It, I like what we were talking about earlier today about it could be a symptom of a person that has no self-esteem. It's medicating inadequacy. It's medicating no self-worth. Mm-hmm. It's medicating depression. It's medicating anger, it's all these things and, and, and a lot of people, for the most part, not everybody, but a lot of people focus on the drinking. And of course, it is the drinking that's beating the hell out of us, but. You know, it's, you know, but well, uh, and
0: you can't work on the other stuff without addressing the drinking, exactly. right? Like exactly. you have to get your head clear. I, I have to have a clear signal to be able to figure out the rest of the stuff. But this is also one of those big misconceptions, right? Where we think we're going to quit drinking, like drinking is the problem. And when I quit drinking, all the unmanageables are going to go away.
1: Oh, me. What
0: but what happened, happens, the truth of the situation is when you quit drinking, you are works. then in the position that you have to deal with the unmanageables.
1: <laughs> yeah. How am I supposed to cope with this? i am I supposed to cope with that? You know, oh my God, who? how long have I been overdrawn at the bank? Or, oh. You know, it's that awareness that people get. And I'd like to see, um, I'd like to see, first of all, more conversations about the very thing we're talking about in terms of education. I'd like to see more of all the people that are out there on the ground that are, that are representing their treatment centers, or they're representing their local hometown alcohol and drug council, or they may be making a 12 step call. You know, there may be a person in recovery making a 12 step call. I'd like to see more people talk about um, how to make that decision earlier on because alcoholism is like any other disease. The earlier we, Intervene the 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 better, yeah. You know the less sick the person is going to be, and and I know I keep saying alcoholism. I'm showing I'm I'm sure I'm showing old school and showing my age. And I know now we've got so many things. I mean, I, we do have an open epidemic. We do have a heroin epidemic, a fentanyl epidemic. We do have still people taking xanax and all these bins of the benzodiazepines clonopin valium blah, blah blah blah. just taking them by the carloads mm-hmm. we are living in some of the most anxious times in the history of this country and the history of the world mm-hmm. you know people are afraid right now we've got a pandemic we've got uh, a very house divided in the united states socio-politically and cultural and so people are anxious and they're you know i I think it was last year sometime at once the, or maybe it was last fall. I heard that the sales of alcohol, the sales of uh, distilled spirits were up like 35%, some phenomenal increase. Uh, Does that mean we've got more alcoholics? I I don't know. I don't, I mean, I think we've got more people drinking (laughs) for For sure. sure.
0: Yeah. But
1: you know, I, I just really I would I would say I would I would say that I would love to see more people go through that decision tree of okay, but the disease itself has a, and this is where people go, what, you're giving the disease like some kind of lifelike quality. Well, I sorry if I personify chemical dependency, but it does have a life of its own and its it's sole job is to talk you out of going to treatment. You know, it's, it's, that's one of its, you know, you're okay. You haven't had a DUI. You're okay. You've never, your doctor's never say anything about, you know, your blood work being weird or whatever. You're okay. You hadn't missed a day of work. You know, you're okay. It's pretty normal to drink a 12 pack of beer every night, you know, that's okay. You don't have any problems because, so that's the kind of stuff. And, and like, I, that's why interventions are necessary. And, and I'm not talking about just interventions where people come in and a trained intervention comes in, in circles of family. I think that's part, some kind of people that early on people have subtle interventions in their disease. Mm -hmm. They, I mean, it might be for the first time ever, their closest friend saying, I've been concerned about you for the last year. I've watched your drinking skyrocket and not just your drinking, but I've watched the problems around your drinking intensify and I'm very concerned about you. That's an early intervention right um, I call
0: these like little knocks on the head yeah you know, I had all these yeah. little knocks on the head trying yeah. to get me to pay attention yeah. and take it more seriously and I just I just wasn't capable you know of course I just drank right through all those little reminders
1: <laughs> yeah well that, you weren't alone with I mean that, that's it's you know the thing about it and we and we fought so hard in the seventies and on into the eighties to get credibility to the statement that alcoholism and dependencies upon other mood altering chemicals is a chronic primary disease. That's own set of symptoms runs a course from early to late. And a lot of, back then, a lot of people, Oh, you know, that's crazy. People just let themselves go. That's how you become an alcoholic. You just let yourself go. Mm-hmm. Now that's religious South talking there. But it, it's just, we have the opportunity now, I think, to have more conversations with people about, you know, the extent of the damage that um, their dependency on something is doing. But these times, I like your term, knocks on the head. They're, they're like little stop signs, you know, when you, mm-hmm. when you get up on Saturday morning and you sort of remember what happened Friday night but not, I mean, hadn't had a full on blackout like you do when you get into middle to middle eight stages of alcoholism, but you've, you've had, you're having some cognitive changes, (laughs) you know, you can't remember things. And also in your interactions with other people, you are saying things that you would never say
0: hmm and doing things that you would never do.
1: And doing things that you would never do. When you start compromising your own values, and that's what, if somebody asks me, all right, what's, what is, how do I know when to go to drink? What is a sign that I need to really be starting to think seriously about getting some help at some level? See a therapist, go to an outpatient program, maybe go to residential. Um, you know, somebody called me not too long ago and says, I can't stop drinking on my own. And I said, okay, well, that's most likely meaning you need detox, you know, medically supervised mm-hmm. detox. That's that's clear sign. Okay. What needs to happen is people need to be able to look at the, as you call them, knocks on the head, these subtle interventions that they're doing things they'd never do, they're saying things they never do, they're they're drinking more or using more of whatever it is that they're using. And now we have, and I had, I know we're not talking, we're not here to talk about recreational and medical use of marijuana. Uh, I'm just, maybe I'm just too old. I can't talk objectively about that. (laughs) Just can't. I mean, I I just, when I see kids going into ERs and full-blown psychosis because they've smoked, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix's purple revenge or whatever they call it at the, at the (laughs) marijuana store. You know, I just can't be objective about that, but because it's, it's a drug and changes the same three things as alcohol does, how you think, feel and act. But I'm really, I like this conversation about, I like this idea and just, it's not abstract at all, Angela. It's a conceptual deal when, I mean, I have had people come to me and say, I think I got a problem. Mm -hmm. I have not a lot, but I have had people come to me and say, I think I've got a problem. Will you help me figure that out? And then we have that conversation and I go through some of the things we've talked about. Mm -hmm. And your,
0: your level of commitment to substance. Also, this was a thing that I started to realize really at the end of my drinking, when, when I truly understood um, that it had more control of me than I had of it, you know, is really starting to be like, oh, wow, this is a situation. <laughs> you know, like I've got something I have to deal with here. That's one of the things I noticed was my level of commitment to it. And I had this moment, you know, I had to go to to jail. And, um, you know, when you get DUIs and you get in trouble, which I was a I got one DUI and I got in the absolute most trouble you could get into with one DUI because I kept violating, right? Because they want you to go to all these classes and do all these things. And I could do all of that just fine. But what I couldn't do was not drink. And that was the main thing they wanted you to do. So I kept violating, um, my diversion and then probation. And for those violations, I had to go to jail. So I remember sitting in jail and I'm not, the person that you would think of would be in jail, right? You know, a lot of people have this picture of what they think of as an alcoholic. And I think for a long time, that was like the homeless person living on the street, you know, with all kinds of problems and mental health. And, you know, obviously that's not the truth, but I was sitting in jail and I was like, wow, like, this is how committed I am to my drinking. I'm willing to you had
1: you had that thought
0: yeah sitting in jail because i'm i'm sitting there and first of all obviously i'm a very i'm a super nerd and i'm a, a very introspective insightful person, right? (laughs) So I'm always studying people from the time I was very, very young. I've always studied people. So I'm sitting in jail and I'm just listening to all this conversation around me. And one person was talking about, um, because it was a Friday night and she was talking about all the other jails and what they do on Friday nights. And I was like, mental note, I do not want to be a person that knows what every different jail does on Friday night. (laughs) Like I don't want that level of jail experience, you know? Um, And then somebody else was complaining about their charge. Yeah, Yeah. Right. And somebody else was complaining about their charge and that they were driving a car that didn't, they didn't have a license. The car didn't have insurance. Oh, and I had a little cocaine in my pocket, but it wasn't <clears throat> my cocaine. And I said, well,
1: I'm sure the cops are very understanding about yeah, that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I go, well, I go, I don't, I've never done cocaine. I said, but you know what else I don't do? I don't carry it around in my pockets for other people. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know if that's a normal thing in the cocaine world. I don't know, but I'm just listening to all this stuff around me. And, And I was sitting there and I was like, wow, I'm here for drinking. I'm here for alcohol. Like this is my level of commitment to alcohol is that I have landed myself in jail for alcohol. Like that's a, that's a heavy commitment, you know? And the other story I tell with this too, is I had a, a guy at sober living a few years ago and And he's like, his parents are telling him, well, you can't stay at our house and drink. And he goes, well, fine, then I'll live in my truck. And I was like, really? That's your commitment to drinking is that you're willing to be homeless. You're willing to live in your truck just to protect your option to drink. Like that's a heavy commitment, you know, and that with those little kind of things, really sunk in for me at the end when I was really analyzing my drinking and what the heck was I going to do? And was I going to be able to get out of it on my own or was I going to need more help or what was I going to do? I was just trying to figure it out, but I understood that I was way more committed to alcohol than I was anything else in my life.
1: You know, that's uh that is the thing about alcoholism. I was, I was listening to talk and I was thinking, you know, it's just really hard for people. If you had that, I would call that. If you were thinking about that, this is my level of commitment to alcohol. I would put that under the category of spiritual breakthrough. I'm sorry. I just think Mm -hmm. that's Mm huge. And, and the guy that's going to go live in his truck because he wants to drink. That's the, that's the person that is, Struggling. I mean, they just, they, you know, declament these five stages of change pre contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Well, they say that most people show up in treatment in pre contemplation states. They don't think they have a problem. I think it's more pre contemplation to contemplation. A lot of people know they have a problem, but they're not willing to take action on it. Mm -hmm.
0: And and well, or they're not sure. I think a lot of people aren't sure what level of action they're willing to take yet because. You also, and I'm speaking as an alcoholic. You really have zero understanding the right. level of action and commitment it's going to take. You have right. no understanding until you are in the middle of it, and you're like, "Oh my God! Until, <laughs> like, okay. What have I done?" <laughs>
1: yeah, and that's I think the criti- one of the. I keep thinking about this thesis of yours. You know what? How do I make the decision? You know what? do I need to pay attention to going around me that will help me make a decision? And I think that there's so, I mean, I believe, and I hear this, I hear people that I've worked with in treatment or they came to my private practice later. I don't know what, I've just heard this where people say, you know, I wish I'd have paid attention to ABC or D. And, And, and yes, people get sick with the disease of addiction. They overdose and die. They, have horrible detoxes from alcohol or, and even not that, even just maybe in the middle that they start experiencing losses due to their drinking or their using of drugs or both. And that's the thing that if I could help anybody make a decision, go to treatment, I would say, tell me, in a few words or less, what has changed in your life that you don't like in just the last 12 months? Mm -hmm. And I did ask that to a person one time, what you had was you, you kind of woke up, you're like, damn, I'm, I'm in jail. I've never been in jail in my life. What am I doing? My commitment to drinking and, and, I just I hope somehow, I don't, maybe I'm not the guy, I probably won't be the guy because I'm going to retire down the road. But, <laughs> but if people can pick up on these knocks on the head, these somewhat subtle changes, these small interventions that life presents to them, I'll tell you, I was in a locker room years ago when I was doing I, my exercise was lap swimming and I loved it. I swam at YMCAs all over Memphis. I became addicted to it. I'd run out at lunch and swim. But I heard this guy say to another in the locker room, I heard as these two young guys and they were getting ready to go in the pool and they were training for the up and coming Memphis and May triathlon. And that was in the eighties when triathlons were really, you know, getting to be popular. And this one guy said to the other guy, as they were getting into their swim suits to go in the pool and swim laps, whatever he said, if i spend one more hour a week on training for this triathlon my wife says we're going to have a problem <laughs> and and i kind of chuckled and they both you know kind of chuckled but when people some a, a big a big thing that people overlook is what's changing in your relationships with others are you more resentful these days
0: grumpy you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Are you grumpy? Are you irritable? Do you find yourself thinking about your next drinking occasion or your next occasion to smoke a joint or your next occasion to do whatever it is that you like to get high on? You know, that preoccupation is a symptom. It's an early symptom and deterioration or even mild breakdowns or misunderstanding misunderstandings, In relationships, maybe more arguments in your loving relationship, whether you're married or have a boyfriend, girlfriend or both or whatever. And these are the subtle, subtle things that people have to look at. Their health is usually not, our health is usually not going to suffer early on. Mm -hmm. We're going to have black, we're going to have hangovers and things like that. I almost said blackouts. We're not, that doesn't happen until later. Uh, If you're, if a person's having a complete memory loss. It's no brainer. Go get help. You know, mm-hmm. go check yourself into treatment. You need medically super, you know, supervised detox. But if people could look at these moments in their life where things are changing subtle to not so subtle, to where they are having more problems in their relationships, they are losing interest in work, a job they used to love. They are they their values are changing their cynicism is rising, their ability to care for themselves is kind of fading away. When I say care for yourself, you know, proper sleep, nutrition, you know, exercise, all the things that make us healthy. And some people end up in treatment and have had those lives before. And those lives started breaking down. Genetic predisposition to the addictions is real. Um, it, every practically every chemically dependent person I've ever worked with have had a, had a an addicted family member, or a, maybe not in their family of origin, somewhere back in the family tree. Because I was always ask that, and I this is this is a fascinating fascinating question about what you know. I just wish people could do that. I wish people could understand that, Hey, you know what, that those sharp words you just have with your wife going out the back door that you normally never have could be a symptom of some changes brought about by the fact that you're drinking daily. Somebody asked me how much is too much and how much is alcoholic drinking? You know, I, a guy, a really cool person that had been in recovery a long time, told me one time about a person that came to them and said, I think I may have a problem, but I only have two drinks a day, day in and day out. It's heavy drinking. I mean, Mm -hmm. people don't realize that. I mean, it's, we're, we're even told by the medical community or were back in the eighties, you know, a little alcohol is good for you, a little Mm -hmm. wine for you. And so we had that reinforced on, on, you know, we had that authorization that permission from that sector of society but
0: well that was one of my things like once i was in recovery and sober that was some early dots i was able to connect later is that Where early in yeah. yeah early in my drinking I didn't drink a lot, right? Because I was a new drinker. I didn't have any tolerance. It didn't take much, Mm -hmm. you know? So a night of drinking might've been three or four beers over the course of a whole night out. You know, I wasn't drinking a ton, but what I recognized is that there was nothing normal about drinking every day the majority of the world doesn't drink every day. And I was a bartender. So that was just normal to me. Everybody I was around drank every day. So I thought that was very normal. But yeah, in in my recovery, looking back, I definitely at some point was able to connect those dots that it doesn't matter how many drinks, you know, like there was nothing normal about me drinking on a daily basis at 20, 22 years old, you know?
1: Okay, stop right there. So I'm glad you said what you just said. That's another thing.
0: <laughs> Still,
1: people have the idea that alcoholics just are just drinking copious amounts of alcohol daily. And you just said it. you weren't, you know, in your early days and and like, and you're absolutely right. I really love what you said earlier. Most people that, and we have millions of people in our country that drink, recreationally socially whatever you want to call it they never have a problem in their life they don't drink every day it's not nor
0: would they ever think about it right and i talk a lot about this non-alcoholic thinking versus alcoholic thinking. Like there is no non-alcoholic person on the planet that would even consider having one drink every day. Like they just wouldn't, they don't think about it that much. It's not important to them. They don't care if alcohol exists or doesn't exist. And they're certainly not going to have it every day.
1: Exactly. And we have
0: to be careful about a lot of those details too, because a lot of those ways that people use to grade, whether they're an alcoholic or not, like you are saying, well, I've never missed a day of work. Or another one I hear all the time is, well, I don't drink alone. And, and everybody would be surprised to even know that I have a drinking problem. Well, of course, they'd be surprised because you put all your energy into hiding it. Of course, they're going to be surprised. Exactly. Yes, that's what you were going for. <laughs> so yes, they're going to be surprised. But a lot of those criteria, are, are they're just not the same for everybody. You know, again, I was a chronic alcoholic daily drinker, and I didn't black out. And I would consider myself late stage alcoholism for sure. Yeah. I didn't have major blackouts. I mean, I had a few blackouts over the course of my drinking. It just wasn't a part of my story. Um, I could say that I didn't miss a day of work either, but I was bartender, so (laughs) (laughs) I had a lot of motivation to go to work because I could drink there.
1: (laughs) Work for you was different (laughs) from work for most people. (laughs) Yes, for sure.
0: But I love that you said that too, with the really noticing those mood things and being irritable and more cynical and, and losses and losses. It doesn't only mean loss of job, loss of spouse, loss of home, but loss of interest in life, in hobbies, loss of your morals (laughs) and standards, right? Because we all do crazy things that we would never do in our right mind. And those are losses. Those are things to look at. And you definitely get irritable and more cynical because you're not functioning at your highest level because you're hung over. You are physically depleted. You are yeah. physiologically depleted. <laughs> you know, you are not functioning at your highest level.
1: Well, you're going through many withdrawal at, at your desk at work or whatever. And that's, that's a sign. That's like something to pay attention to. It, I mean, if it happens on a regular basis, you know, um, I, I really believe we're at a point in American society where there's a lot of people there are many, many drinkers that are, and you we hear this term functional alcoholics. Well, I don't know. I, I mean, maybe there's such a thing, but we s- still many activities, many events in our daily living are uh, I want to say alcohol-centered or, or somehow there's, there's, there's booze and wine and stuff involved. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing there. I I want your listeners to, from my opinion, there's where you and I are not talking about people who have a drink and their lives are not wrecked by it. We're talking about people who are on the verge on the edge, or really even more crossing over a line into harmful dependency. And, and, and from there, from harmful, harmful dependency is using to feel normal. And before all those things happen, a lot of other stuff happens. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's like, I've seen people leave wedding receptions. I've been to wedding receptions that chose the bride and groom who chose not to have alcohol. And the last time I happened to me, has been, I mean, it's been a few years ago. But I remember some people kind of kind of storming out because there wasn't going to be any beer or wine or whatever there. And I don't, are those people alcoholic? Probably not, but, or maybe one is, I don't know. It, it's, I think that if a person really gets honest with himself, they have to look at, kind of what you said earlier, just a few minutes ago, how committed are they? You know, what, what kind of, (laughs) what kind of effort and energy is made to make sure that alcohol is incorporated in your daily life? You know, is that, is drinking the first place you go when you're, you just had a stressful argument or work is weird or, are there some kind of stressor in your life that you just you feel like you have to have a drink to cope with rather than sitting down and meditating a few minutes or talking to some close friends that maybe have, have experienced the same deal or whatever. And I think people have to pay, I know people have to pay a real, they pay close attention to how does alcohol fit in my life? How important is it? Can I go to events without it? That the, 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 the alcohol not served. Do I have to, do I, is it possible that I rely on alcohol? You know, you hear people say, "Oh, well, thank God it's the end. Thank God it's the end of Monday. I'll go home and kick my shoes off and have a glass of wine. There are people that do that that are not alcoholic.
0: I'm mm-hmm.
1: um, Don't please, I'm not, I don't want your listeners to think, oh my God, he thinks of an alcoholic under every rock. I do not. <laughs> Alcoholics are in the minority in our population. Mm-hmm. Although I'll be honest, I think there are a lot more of them than you know, national statistics say without statistics. a
0: doubt. Yeah. 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 There's
1: 22 yeah. million alcoholics in the United States today.
0: Our you know, nation, start, yeah, our nation at, as a whole has an incredible commitment to alcohol
1: Oh, <laughs> and
0: celebrating it and advertising it and making sure it is readily available at every event for everyone. Yeah. Our, our nation itself is, uh, very fond of alcohol we
1: are. <laughs> we are very preoccupied socially with how alcohol is going to fit into our social life and again there are millions of people who socially drink or they drink with friends at dinner or whatever but the, if they don't experience problems on a more or less continuous basis. Mm-hmm. And and that's, that's what it comes down to for the person that's really, that's, and I think we'll hopefully see more of these people because of the awareness and education around us. But that's what the person that's really trying to decide, okay, do I have a problem? Do I need to go get help? Are they having disruptions and problems in their life? And do they, and do they happen from time to time? You know, one DUI does not an alcoholic mate. One missed day of work because you're so hung over from the bachelor party the night before does not an alcoholic make, And, and, but is there a pattern? Is there a more or less continuous, you know, the things happen. Do th- have things been, con- was there a beginning to us? And what does it continue to, to be a pattern of things or happening? Problems in my life are happening because of my use of, mood altering whatever.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, uh just like that guy back in the locker room and you know, if I was to tell people that exercise can be an addiction and it is a process addiction, uh back in the 80s, people would just laugh me out of the room. But look where mm-hmm. we're we have people that they can't go without a run every day because their own body's addicted to enkeplins and endorphins in their brain. <laughs> and they how to do it, you know, and that's, of course, goes back to the origin of the disease, alcoholic behavior, addictive behavior, is compulsive behavior, and compulsive behavior is any behavior it's shame-based, and so if we are in a process, if we are in the continuum, we're on the spectrum of addiction, problems happen throughout, I mean, if somebody is smart enough to realize that they just, their second DUI was not a chance happening that you just got your first DUI last year. And now here you're, you are still having judgment problems with deciding when you're able to drive or not drive because you've been drinking. And that's what a DUI comes down to is impaired judgment. You know,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I mean, let's face it. I, you just said it, you drank for years and, Never had a DUI. I've done the same thing. You know, I used to drive around with you know, quarter, I used to drive around a pound of marijuana in the trunk of my car. You know, it, I was was I a drug dealer, didn't think I was. I was splitting it with friends, but yeah, I was probably a drug dealer. But you know, <laughs> that's we we had to call ourselves out on this stuff, right? We have to just say, look, yeah, there's a pattern in my life that's related to. My consumption of fill in the blank right. People talk, you know people are psychologically and physically dependent upon anything that changes those three things how you think feel and act. And yes, marijuana fits in there. Mm-hmm. And all you out there listen to me that think marijuana's safe drug and great drug and it's not in the in the, in the grand scheme of things, I just don't think sadly, a lot of people, They don't make the connections in what's going on with their relationship, with their drinking or their drugging. They they miss it for a lot of reasons. Although I will tell you, I have had recently more people call me. I don't get a lot of calls anymore, period. But I've had several people call me and say, here's what's going on. What do you think I need to do? And I'll say, go get an assessment with a Mm -hmm. licensed professional, go get, go talk to somebody that deals with this every day and they'll help you decide if you've got, if you've got a dependency, it's not a problem. It's a dependency. It's not, uh, it's not some temporary, uh, deal. It's a disease process going on. And when, when there's true addiction going on, it's a disease process. And, I think that scares people, you know, when they start thinking about, okay, well, I do drink more than I used to, or I do medicate this, or if they're smart enough to to make those kind of, have those kind of insights, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: it's still, it's a, it's just, it's a disease process. A lot of people don't don't get that. It's like I told you earlier this afternoon, talking to family and said, well, we're going to give him one more chance (laughs) to drink. You said it earlier in this interview. I could not, not drink. Right. Alcoholics don't have a choice. Right. They don't have that option of, Oh my God, I'm on probation. If I drink one more time, my, you know, my goose is cooked. That's, you know, and, and, and I, families don't know, just like the individual families don't know. Yeah. Nobody has a, has a handbook given to them when they have, when their kids are born.
0: Well in families you know this is such a challenge as an interventionist too because families want so badly for it to be different you know <laughs> as I, as I guess we do too right as the alcoholic we want it to be different too but yeah. families want so badly for the situation to resolve itself without them having to take any big action and you and I were, you know, kind of joking, not in an unkind way, but talking about those intervention phone calls earlier and and just what you said, right? Family always will say, well, we're going to give or you know, a family will call me and talk to me about an intervention. And then they'll call me a week later and say, well, you know what, since we've talked, I mean, he's been going to work every day and he seems to be, he's turned a corner. You know, those are always the words. He's turned a corner. And he's okay. He's okay yeah. now, yeah. Thank so, God,
1: he's not an alcoholic.
0: Yeah, so we're okay. going to, so we're just, we want to see how well he dies, and hopefully this time it's going to be different. And,
1: you know, it's yeah. <laughs> Yeah, You made the
0: comment about you made a comment about cancer. And I said, yes, if this cancer doesn't resolve itself in another month, we'll call you back. It's like you have to really understand it in those terms, right? Cancer isn't going to magically go away. Alcoholism isn't going to magically go away like there. You have to take action and take steps and do things to to handle it.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I guess if I could sum up and going back to your original question, if I could maybe offer a small checklist to, to people and to listeners, I would say that, you know, when to go to get help at some level of treatment, when these things that we've talked about, when there's subtle to not so subtle changes in your primary relationships, when there's subtle to not so subtle changes in your physical habits, in your life, in your routines, in your relationships at work? And are there subtle to not so subtle changes in in the in your mental house, in your emotional well-being? You know, do you feel well? Do you feel like you are living? with a sense of emotional well-being a lot of some people don't stop inventory that but that's important you know are we starting to experience subtle to not so subtle losses in our life Mm
0: -hmm.
1: maybe maybe it's and maybe it's not even we've lost a friend whatever maybe we're starting we've lost our self-esteem Mm -hmm. maybe we feel lost ourselves depressed whatever and and also you know are we experiencing conflicts with our own beliefs and values because these are things I know that change early on with people that end up going to treatment or struggling with an alcohol dependency or dependency on some other mood altering drug. So I, yeah.
0: That's a great cool. place to sum it up right there. That was an yeah. awesome checklist too. That was really good. <laughs>
1: Thanks. I, I just, you know, I go back to the, some of this early education that I had and being a rookie counselor and we always used, I always looked stopped, stop. I always liked that. I always would focus on that symptom. Are your values and beliefs changing? And, you know, I, I would think, oh, well, good grief if the whole, if everything's coming down around your shoulders, it, it if things are collapsing in your life, it seems like that would be something that you would miss. But, it's, I mean, it's important. I mean, mm-hmm. who we are, what we stand for, our convictions, our, our, what we believe in, it's certainly our self-worth, you know, and so and and you and I talked about this earlier. Some people don't have self worth to begin with, and that's mm-hmm. how they, you know, lack of self worth plus the genetics equal alcoholism mm-hmm. or equal addiction. It happens every time.
0: Yeah, because when your self esteem is low, you're you're definitely going to self medicate, right? You have to do something yep. to feel better in so many ways.
1: Absolutely
0: mr watts thank you so much for doing this with me you're
1: so welcome thank you for inviting me to talk i love talking to you and i'm always but this was this was great
0: yeah absolutely thank you
1: thank you angela i enjoyed it you've reached the end of another great episode of the addiction unlimited podcast candid and honest conversation about addiction and recovery Be sure to visit us at addictionunlimited.com to join the conversation and access show notes and links to everything we talked about. Love this episode? Please take 30 seconds to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes to help us
0: improve and give you the information you want. Thanks for listening. See you next week.